Gracious God and Father, you are a speaking God. Would you make us a listening people? I pray that right now we would not just come to open up this text, but we would come to be opened up to you and that you, Holy Spirit, would apply this word that you have preserved and that right now you are moving through. I pray that you would apply it to our hearts and lives and that wherever we are beholden to voices, where we're we're listening to the voice of friends or family members or just our own internal monologue in a way that is leading us into unhealth, into chaos into destruction in certain areas, I pray, God, that we, by your grace, would lay down those voices that we're tempted to listen to and that we would enthrone a truer, healthier voice, one that's worthy of our attention. Would you use this text and this time to lead us into greater health in that way? We look forward to what you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just before we dive in, uh, a quick announcement about Christmas Eve. Uh, I hope you're planning to come and to worship with us on Christmas Eve. We have one slight change. We will not be meeting at 3 and 5 p.m. We'll be meeting at 3 and 7.30 p.m. Right here in this room, those are both family-friendly services. We'll have activity bags for the kids, and we'll all be together in this room. And the other note about Christmas Eve that I'm really excited about is we will be co-hosting that together with Neartown Church, who worships just down the road, but offices and trains out of this space with us as part of our collaborative efforts. And so we're excited to be getting to do that together on Christmas Eve. So you'll see some new faces helping with our worship team and some folks that will be greeting you at the door. And it should be a really special night to see the church coming together as one as we together celebrate the coming of Jesus. So I hope you plan to be with us at three or 7.30, not five o'clock. If you come at five o'clock, you will be disappointed. No one will be here at 5 p.m. Actually, a lot of St. Thomas people will be here at 5 p.m. So you could join the five o'clock mass and they will be using our parking. So we will not be here. Okay. There you go. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you're tempted to ask the question, who's in charge here? Like, what's happening? Who's calling the shots around here? It's become this nearly legendary story that my boys like to give me a hard time with. I don't usually play this card, but we had one very bad restaurant experience a couple of years ago where nearing the end of the experience, I finally said, I just need to speak to a manager, someone in charge, to make sure that this whole thing doesn't happen again. I'm not proud of the moment, but my boys remind, it, remind me of it often. They're like, Dad, are you about to do the, like, who's in charge thing? Um, and I remember, you know, not just that experience, but when I was in youth ministry, my friend Denver McAllister, Denver, are you here? Denver's here sometimes, not this morning. Uh, my friend Denver McAllister and I invented a game. We were doing youth ministry together, and when you have crowds of middle school and high school students and maybe you're waiting in line or you're waiting for the next thing and everybody's just standing around, that can be some really dangerous territory. And so Denver and I one summer invented the sandal game, which was we took our sandal off of our feet and then we slapped each other in the chest as hard as we could back and forth until someone gave up. And uh, 
because physical pain plays really well with middle, schooler, middle schoolers and high schoolers. And, and so this became like the game of the summer. And whenever we were waiting for something, like, Denver, Jeremiah, square off. And so there we are like, ah, and then you do it back and forth. And we thought we were like total conquerors because we'd passed the time and kids thought it was hysterical and our chest was bright red. And well, it kind of took root and kids started playing the game. And later in, on in the summer, we were at a, like a retreat center, and I was there, and there's a group of kids, and some of the kids were playing, and so you hear this like, ah, and then they do it back to the other one, ah, and someone came running in, and they see this massive humanity, and these kids are red and slapping one another, and they go, who's in charge here? And I was like, uh, I am? And it was in that moment as I was telling them that I was the one in charge that I think we both were becoming present to something in the same moment that I probably wasn't fit to be in charge. You know, it's one of those like uh, where you have to step up and take responsibility for the debacle that is happening all around you. Uh, it's those sorts of moments that I think we're going to be uncomfortably, uncomfortably invited into by this text. Namely, not just about out there at some restaurant or with some group of high school kids, but actually kind of running into the territory of our own lives and, and paying attention to where are things a bit chaotic, a bit messy, where there's like this territory in my life, this set of relationships, this thing that's happening that feels like it's just in disarray. And as the prophet is prone to do, we're going, he's going to kind of run into that territory. He's going to invite us to run into the territory of our own lives and go, well, who's calling the shots here? How has it gotten to this place of unraveling, of chaos, how has your home gotten to this place or these relationships at work or finances or your thought life in such a way that you're tempted to go, I don't, I don't rightly know. And the prophet's going to say, well, who's calling the shots and are they qualified to be calling them? And I, I think what we're going to be pressed towards together by this text is to, to, together to dethrone the sorts of voices that are not to be trusted, the sort of wily shepherds that will mislead, and then to survey the landscape and understand what does it look like to cherish, to enthrone the proper voices. And Jeremiah 23 is going to lead us into that. So let, let's see if we can, we can make sense of this ancient prophecy together in such a way that will reorder the way that we even prioritize certain voices in our own life. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4, this is going to show us what does it look like to, to dethrone wily shepherds, shepherds that should have never had authority or control. It says this, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. You need to pay attention whenever the Lord shows up and says, woe. He's calling his people to stop in their tracks and to pay attention. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock. You've driven them away. You've not attended to them. Behold, I'm going to attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I'm going to gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. 
A strong word from Yahweh about what is happening among his people, namely that the wrong leaders have had influence. In order to make sense of this text, we're going to have to do a little historical work like we have week over week as we plunge into these prophets. And in order to make sense of this one, we need to situate ourselves in about 590 B.C. If you've been with us, we just fast forwarded 110 years from last week. Last week we were in Micah and Micah was saying that the northern kingdom had just been carried away by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom of Judah was wondering, is the same fate about to be, take us over? Well, God delivered them from the Assyrians, and over the last hundred years, they've kind of limped along, holding things together, but the Babylonians, the new world power, has come. And they've actually just had the first breach in Jerusalem, and as the Babylonians made it w- their way into the capital city of the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, they carried away some of the powerful, the educated, the most promising. These are people like Daniel people that got carried away into exile, and they left the less educated, the less powerful. So Jerusalem is just a shell of what it once was. And in addition, the Babylonians took away the king and they put in a new puppet king, 21-year-old Zedekiah. So Zedekiah is the shepherd of God's people, but it's a shell of God's people in a emaciated Jerusalem led by this young guy in his early 20s who isn't quite fit to rule. You see, if we're situated in this text and the people that were receiving this the first time, they were being led by Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, like a lot of men in their early 20s, or at least like I was in my early 20s, he thinks he's tougher than he is. He likes to thump his chest and act like he's got it all together, forgetting the fact that he's just a puppet king. And so he starts to, on the slide, say, you know what, we're going to overthrow these Babylonian rulers. And so he's kind of rabble-rousing and getting people together. And the, the people who are left living in Jerusalem are under the care of this king going, what can we do? He's so foolish and so full of himself, he's about to drive the final nail into our coffin. This is where the people are living. And incidentally, He does just that, and just a few short years from the writing of this particular prophecy, the Babylonians are going to finally sack Jerusalem. They're going to burn it to the ground, and when they're about to come in, you know what Zedekiah does? He escapes, and he runs for his own life. He and his his forces escape by night, and they're running scared. Meanwhile, Jerusalem is being burned and the people they're supposed to be protecting are being killed. And finally, the Babylonians catch up to them out into the wilderness and they capture Zedekiah, they kill his children, and then they gouge out his eyes and carry him to Babylon. A devastating end to the southern kingdom under the leadership of this very unqualified leader. Into that space, Jeremiah says, woe to the shepherds of my people on behalf of Yahweh. He's speaking about a time and a place where the people are exposed and they need someone that will operate with wisdom and clarity and all they have is a bold and a brash and a rebellious and a foolish leader who's destroying them. And I think if we're going to make sense of this text in our own day, we, we, we're We're trying to listen to it with the proper ears, those who would have received it first. And then we need to take that principle and we transport it to our own day and we ask this question. 
Where in life is, is chaos reigning and whose influence is being leveraged in that area of your life? This is where the hope of this text speaks. It speaks to a people that are beginning to realize there's someone who has influence over my life and they shouldn't. I've, I've actually submitted to them and I shouldn't. For some of you, you, you taste this and you experience this in different places. I've sat with some people in our community who say, I don't know why week after week I end up at the same places, places that I swear I'm not going back to. I end up at the same happy hour and I leave with someone that I really shouldn't be leaving with and I end up doing things that I'm feeling less about myself and ashamed of because of it. And, and we have to ask where there's an area of our life like that that's threaded with decay and deterioration. We go, whose voices are influencing that? We actually need to run into our lives and with our hands up go, who's in charge here? And why do I keep running back to that well that doesn't satisfy? Or some of you young parents that are in these moments where all of a sudden the anger spikes and the voice gets high and everybody goes to their corner of the house because in these moments we don't almost know, excuse me, know how to deal with the tension that's building and we're left wondering, why does this keep happening? Which voice am I listening to? Which influence informs the, the anger and the division in my home? Or it may be like the person I sat with the other day, uh, I guess it's been a few months ago, and they said to me, I'm just, I'm a miserable success. From the outside looking in, everybody looks and goes, that's what I want. I want that bank account, I want to live in that neighborhood, I want that experience, but I'm miserable. And I want to, in each of these sorts of arenas, or if you would just be honest enough to survey the landscape of your own life and ask, where do you feel the lack of shalom and wholeness most pointedly? And would you rush into that space and ask the question, who's got the influence here? Why has this become normal? The truth is, we often hear back things like, I've got this friend group with an outsized influence in my life. What they value, I just end up valuing. Because they cherish these things and run after these things, all of a sudden I find that I just do what they do. Maybe those are the wily shepherds in your life that you need to dethrone. It may be that you're still fighting the voice of a parent that is not even around anymore or isn't present in your life, but things you heard as a child that you're still allowing that to exert such influence over your life that you're, you're fighting and thrashing against a voice that really should not have that sort of authority over you anymore, but it's, it's reshaping the way your story is being told. Or maybe most scary of all is that in our honesty... We, like that moment where I'm standing at the retreat center and someone's asking who's in charge here, and I have to stand up and say, well, I am. I've been trusting my own wisdom and my own insight over this area, and I keep going back to it. I tell other people, well, you don't understand. I've got this under control. Let me handle this. And as a result, in my white-knuckled posture, trying by my own strength to hold it all together, I keep ending up back at that same devastating, chaotic spot. Maybe what you need to admit this morning is that the wily shepherd in your life is the person you see in the mirror. You see, 
Yahweh comes out of the gates in Jeremiah 23 saying, woe to those that exercise influence in a way that robs people of joy in the presence of God. He says, they've scattered my people. They've robbed them. The first movement in this text requires of us to be the sort of people that dethrone those voices. We say they're not going to continue to operate in this sort of way, which raises the question in that void of that leadership vacuum. How do we move forward in a healthier way? Jeremiah presses on and he paints a picture of a different sort of voice that will lead us in a different sort of conclusion. Picking up in verse 5 and 6, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, he paints a picture of a different sort of shepherd. Not a wily shepherd, but a wise king. And he introduces him with the title Righteous Branch. If we were in that original audience in 590 BC, and we heard Jeremiah use the term righteous branch, it would be like a breath of fresh air. We would have heard it before. It would have been like coming up for oxygen. We would have gone, what was that you said? Like a cool breeze when you hear righteous branch, because this is the thread of hope that God by his prophets has drawn through all the darkest moments for his people. Isaiah introduced the title about 150 years prior, when all of the, the pain that was coming for God's people was still just a distant reality that was slowly growing. And he said, one day there's going to be a leader that comes and he's going to be known as the branch. Now, all of the terror that they saw on the distant horizon has become a reality. And, and Jeremiah says, listen, the hope of the righteous branch, the sort of leader that will lead properly, whose voice is to be trusted, that hope is still alive. And a hundred years later, Zechariah and 500 is going to pull on that same thread. And what you realize is that through all of the low points of God's people, it's the prophets anointed with the Spirit of God that says, just wait, the branch, the righteous branch out of the stump of David's history is going to come and set things right. And then they describe why this voice is so fruitful. Why this king deserves to be on the throne. And we see it in a few different ways in these verses. The first is this. It says, it says that he deals wisely in verse 5b. Did you see that? He shall reign as king and deal wisely. Those two words in the English are actually translating one word in the Hebrew. And the word is sakal. Can you say that? Sakal. Beautiful. You can, uh, you can impress your friends this week with the Hebrew you've learned. Sakal. Sakal means being so wise that you move patiently, slowly, looking at something from every angle. It's the opposite of the chest-thumping, brash bravado of a Zedekiah who's acting like he has it all together, but he hasn't stopped to consider the implications of what he's doing. You see, the sort of ruler whose voice ought to be on the throne, ought to be trusted in your life, is the sort of person, the sort of ruler that considers it from every angle before taking a move, that, that has thought about the end from the beginning. 
people in your life that are sakal are the sort of people that you seek out when you're about to make a major life decision and you want to talk to them. You want to take them to coffee and as you start to share your heart with them, they don't interrupt you and start laying a lecture or a sermon on you. They don't jump to conclusions and explain why they already know all the right answers about what you're sharing. They sit back. They oftentimes have a knitted brow and they go, ooh, that's interesting. That sounds hard. Tell me more about that. They'll ask questions about what you've heard from other people and what you've done in the past and they'll consider your history and your context. They'll ask you that one sort of question in the middle of it all that flips it upside down and causes you to go, oh, I never even thought of that. Like that's an entire blind spot in my decision making I hadn't even considered. And now all of a sudden, because you're sitting with someone who is Sakal, who considers it from every angle, you're starting to realize when I was just operating by the wisdom between my own two ears, I was in a dangerous place. There was so much I hadn't considered, so much I didn't see, that when I enthrone my own opinion and my own voice, I am in such danger because I need someone from outside of the system that operates with this sort of wisdom. You see, he's saying we need someone on the throne that deals wisely, that is Sakal, patient, thinking about it from every angle. And then what he says is that sort of leader, then did you see what flows out of it? He says, and they shall execute, or, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Executing justice and righteousness. These two words often come together in the Old Testament. And what they mean is, is certainly doing what's legal, what is appropriate according to the law, but not just that. It's what's right and good for everybody involved. It considers the weak and the powerless and allows everyone to flourish. The idea is this, that in the midst of life, we all have so many decisions, so many realities where when you consider all the nuances, the next step is not clear and sometimes you, you start to wrestle with, I just don't even know what the right thing to do is. Well, it is the Sakal leader, it is the wise leader who is able to say, here's the next right step. I've considered your context, your situation, your struggle, your history, and now we know how to deal in justice and righteousness, what is right and good and proper in your next move. You see, the heart of Yahweh is coming through as he's saying, you have to quit listening to these wily shepherds and enthrone the wise king who thinks about everything and then is able to say, here's the next right step. And the outcome of this sort of leadership from that sort of leader, what we get is this. He says in verse 6, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. What comes from wise leadership that knows the next right step is salvation and security. The word for salvation there literally means wide open spaces. The idea is that our poor decision making, where we enthrone the wrong voices, we slowly find ourselves in the straits. You know, where you start feeling like it's really stuffy in here. I can't quite move or breathe the division in my home that I have sown by so foolishly dealing with the issues in the past, the relationships that have broken around me and in my family, the things that are causing my joy to flood away from me, that in those spaces, all of a sudden we feel trapped. And what he's saying is this sort of leader can lead you into wide open spaces. It's opener out there. Dr. Seuss would say, 
and those wide open spaces. That he's saying, I can lead you into those sorts of places where you can breathe and you will finally be secure. I often brush my four-year-old's teeth at night, or at least on the nights where I draw the short straw. And, uh, you know, I brush his teeth. He sits up on the, on the bathroom counter. And then at the end of brushing his teeth, you know, maybe there's been some tears, maybe there's been some struggle, but we finally get everything done. And in order to restore the joy and the health in the system, I'll do this thing where I tell him to jump to me, you know. And now my four-year-old really likes to have his feet on the ground, so he does this wringing of his hands, and he gets so nervous, and closer, dad, closer, to the point where I'll just be standing right under him, and I'm like, kind of ruins the point, you know? Uh, I'm like, I'm already holding you, basically, but come on, buddy. And slowly, night after night, as he does this, this, this rigmarole, this thing, he, he grows more and more comfortable. There's less of this, you know, oh, I don't know. Because what he begins to realize is dad's considered all of the kind of variables. He's not surprised by what's happening. He's not claiming to be able to do something he can't do. And in fact, I'll get further and further, and Judah now with joy and less hand-wringing will jump. And as I catch him, there is great security for him, joy in this experience. This is what the, the Sakal leader that Jeremiah is talking about is leading his people into. The sort of space where you have felt hemmed in, but here I am speaking a better word to you, saying, come with me in a new direction and trust me. You're standing there going, well, I don't know. This is the way I've always done it. And I totally submitting my decision-making to your voice. I don't know if I ought to do that. He's going, come on, trust me. I've considered the outcome. My hands are secure. And in this passage, what he's saying is Judah will be saved. Israel will be secure. You will experience the wide open spaces that have been secured for you when this sort of voice is on the throne. And he does this thing interestingly at the end of verse 6 saying, and this is the name by which you will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Something that can be lost on us in the English is that as he's describing who this proper shepherd that should be on the throne is, he actually takes the Hebrew phrase for Zedekiah. Zedekiah's name means, uh, the Lord is my righteousness. He says, this different sort of king that's going to be on the throne is, our righteousness is the Lord. He actually takes the words, inverts them, and he puts it in the communal. In essence, what he's saying is, his name is everything upside down and backwards of what Zedekiah is. What you've seen in this young, brash king that's actually trying to prop himself up at great cost to you, there's a different sort of king coming, and he's going to be the absolute inverse of that. This is his name. And then he goes on to say in verse 7 and 8 that when this sort of king is on the throne, we will celebrate his legacy forever. Did you hear it in verse 7 and 8? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. What's he saying there? He's saying that the, if, if you've just been reading the Old Testament straight through, what you would realize is that the exodus is the salvation event of the Old Testament. 
All throughout the Psalms, when they're trying to decide, is God powerful enough to come for us? They just look back to the Exodus and they say, he split the waters and he set the Israelites free from Egypt. Yes, God is strong enough. But in this moment, Jeremiah says something that is audacious. He says, this righteous branch, this Sakal leader that will always know what is right and is going to lead you into wide open spaces and security, this leader... What he does is going to be so grand that it's even going to outpace the exodus. You're not going to look back and go, oh yeah, I remember that God split the Red Sea. He's saying Easter is going to outstrip Passover. He's saying people are going to talk about a different sort of rescue that was even greater than the Israelites through the waters. But it's going to be a multinational people set free from the grip of death itself. He's saying this sort of king is going to accomplish something that we are going to celebrate forever. And you won't go back to the thing before the thing. You're going to go, oh, this is the legacy. This is what we celebrate. You see, what this text is calling to a people is they're waiting, uncomfortable, longing, feeling stuck. He's saying, look to the horizon. There's one worthy of celebration. He is one who came in the fullness of Sakal, perfect wisdom. When Jesus was laid like a baby in a manger, he wasn't a brash, you know, chest-thumping young leader that's saying, send me in when he doesn't realize what he's actually signing up for. He and the bosom of the Father for all of eternity had operated in perfect wisdom, asking the question, what is it What is it that is going to secure the greatest joy for all of eternity, for all of my multinational family, and what is going to secure glory to the Father in a way that outstrips everything else? And he says, it's this. It's going to be the greatest rescue plan, me plunging into the depths on behalf of my people in perfect wisdom, understanding all that's going to be required of me. And then he walked in perfect righteousness and justice, always knowing what the next right move was always tending to the powerless and the forgotten. He still does, by the way. He tends to us in our oppression, our heartache, our struggle. He finds the people in the straits and he says, oh, I can lead you out. His voice is perfect. His path is secure. And on the other end of it is salvation because, listen, his name is the inverse of Zedekiah. When the pressure is greatest and the enemy is at the gate, the king of kings did not run scared. He didn't leave you to fend for yourself. He stood in front of all of his people and he said, put it all on me. Everything that is, that is due them, all the ways that they have listened to the wrong voices over and over and over again, they've gotten themselves into this by their own folly. They deserve it. But he stands and he says, no, 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 but out of love for them, what they deserve, put it on me. It's the inverse of Zedekiah. He says, I will pay the price. I'm not going to run scared. And that's just what Jesus did as he rode into town on something called uh, uh, on the, the Sunday before his death, right? As he comes in on Palm Sunday, they, they cry his name. They, they champion him. But he knows in that moment that he's coming to face your enemies and mine head on. And in so doing, he secures salvation and security. Listen, 
as we stand in the midst of all of our poor decision-making, where we have cherished the wrong voices and we find ourselves in the straits, here stands the king of kings going, jump to me. You don't have to stay there. Come on. My voice is perfectly wise and just, and I will lead you to open space and security. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, jump into my arms. I will lead you into all that your soul is longing for. Listen. The King of Kings, Jesus, the righteous branch, he's the voice to be championed, to be enthroned. And the invitation as we continue in the Advent season to celebrate his coming and to anticipate his coming is to dethrone all the lesser voices and say, Jesus, morning by morning and moment by moment, I want to listen for and submit to you because you are the trustworthy voice. You are qualified to call the shots. Let's enthrone the King of Kings together as we anxiously await his return. Amen. Let me pray for us.